Hello, it's CPE Executive Editor Therese Fitzgerald. Welcome to my conversation with Riaz Taplin, founder and CEO of Riaz Capital. San Francisco is second only to New York City in rental prices. So much of the city's workforce must choose between spending the bulk of their earnings on rent or moving further outside the city. Taplin, a second-generation real estate investor and developer, has found a creative solution to that dilemma. He calls it micro-living, and it is a hipper, though smaller, alternative to traditional workforce housing. Taplin currently owns and operates 1,500 of these units, and he has another 1,700 under construction. He and I spoke about how he manages to deliver economy without sacrificing the residential experience. Here's what he had to say. Riaz, you have been successful at thinking small, so to speak, about a big problem, the problem of housing the urban worker. Tell us about your niche and how you came to pursue it. Therese, thanks so much. In terms of thinking small, I think it's hard to separate what I do today without connecting it with the aha moment that I had in my career, which is that I bought a building without any intention of doing anything special. And the first person moving to the building was doing a PhD at Stanford, was willing to commute 60 miles a day on the 880, which is kind of the definition of hell, in order to live in 225 square feet in what I would consider not a 10 location in Oakland. And I called this person up and I said, you know, why do you want to do this? And he said to me very simply, look, it's the cheapest place that I can live and live with my wife without having to live with somebody else. And that was my fundamentally like the aha moment. And it was that moment where I was like, wow, if this is really the demand for this price point, I could build a very scalable platform simply servicing this price point. And how do I do that? And then over the decade that came after that, I went about exploring, you know, is co-living the answer? Is micro-units the answer? Is, you know, just a regular buildings where you're trying to be a little more cost-effective the answer? And what it came to is, in order to make it sustainable, how do you create a scalable way of building a unit type, which fits into that check right of somebody who makes median income while producing a yield on a square footage basis, which is appealing to investors. So what has been your answer to this question? You know, the range of units in our go forward strategy is catering to the need of the, of the resident. So we have units that go as small as it's called 250 square feet for a single person. And we always focus on the six zones of functionality, a place to sleep, a place to prepare food, a place to lounge, a place to work, a bathroom, a closet. So regardless of the size, we're not getting rid of any of the six zones, but 250 square feet, then let's say you're a couple, God forbid, those move up into the four to 500 square foot range. And then basically, let's say you're going to be living with a roommate, those move into the 550 to 600 square foot range. So that from a business strategy, the idea is how do we make it a little bit smaller, build a little bit less parking and be 25 to 30% cheaper than the market average. And how has your product evolved over time and in response to changing market conditions like COVID? 
And I think here, the fact that I grew up in a real estate family is really helpful because, and what you learn over a period of time and in real estate, you, you always want to avoid specific purpose real estate. You want forever real estate. And so something that might be very popular one decade is very unpopular the next decade. And because I had had experience doing luxury housing, mass market housing, et cetera, you, know, you don't want to make massive movements in response to any one thing, nor do you want to be deaf to what's happening around you. Right. So I would say the biggest evolution has been from COVID is the fact that we have to allow for the fact that most likely we will be working at home a portion of the time, if not all of the time. So the ability that people have to work from home is important. So that's a zone that we've added to all units. I think another one that one might not think of is we never thought about ourselves as always being a semi-furnished strategy or having some units that were fully furnished. What we found in many of our units is someone would rent an apartment and they don't have the capital or the reserves to go and buy furniture. So they're sleeping on the floor, often just with sheets. So we thought, oh, we can create a lot of value for our customer by providing the furniture because they may not be able to go do that on their own. I would say the other one is that, you know, which is COVID and pre-COVID is bikes. You know, micromobility for cities like Oakland, San Diego, Sacramento is really going to solve a lot of the last mile problems. But when you come home with your bike or your scooter or whatever, there needs to be a place to put that. So having very clear spaces in the buildings that are secure, easily accessible in the building, and people feel safe leaving their, what in many times their most expensive possession, is something that we're very focused on. In addition to that, in addition to the work from home space in the residence, in the common areas, we've designed work pods, a lounge space, self-serve cafe, and media room, so, and, and meeting rooms. So these spaces aren't big, but like the work pod could be 100 square feet, but if you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you need to take a call, that can be mind-numbing. Absolutely. And that also then relates to the community in which the buildings are in. If you're going to be working from home most of the day, that doesn't mean you want to sit in your little box all day long. That's boring beyond belief, right? So the, the way we think about the integration of the building with the community, that there's a gym that you could walk to, or even there's a gym in the building. There's a cafe you can walk to. There's a restaurant where you can go grab lunch all becomes honestly much more important if you're going to be spending far more of your waking hours at home. So this sounds like an ideal solution for a market like San Francisco. Would it work in every city? That's a great question, right? And I think that in terms of thinking about the housing problem in America is the thing that Riaz Capital is doing in California will not fix all problems. And the way that we've thought about this is okay, let's try and find a way to fix a problem in a area for a part of the demographic. And the part of the demographic, Therese, that we're focused on is predominantly the stage of life, post-college, pre-life partner or children. In reality, our design actually works very well for post, uh, post-children as well if people don't want to have as much space. The strategy is not designed for the suburban lifestyle. So it's really an urban housing solution. So it works very well in markets like New York, Chicago, Boston, Seattle, Portland, Austin, Los Angeles, Miami, the urban markets in America. I would say it's not designed for a Phoenix. It's not designed, you know, Denver is probably somewhere in the middle. And so to give you some idea in the Bay Area, 
you know, and we kind of sit also in, under the umbrella of moderate income housing, right? So we came up with this term called micro living. What is micro living? We're trying to come up with a nice way of referring to entry level housing. So it's entry level housing, and we want to create a premium experience at an affordable price without calling it workforce housing or, I mean, these aren't fun terms. Exactly. How do you create a cool solution for people to live in urban environments? That was the problem that we set out to solve. And if you think about like the case study houses, we have now gone through, we're probably designing at case study 25 right now. So we, if you think about like software updates, let's come up with a template of a building. And every time we learn something new, either from the market, from tenant experience, from feedback from the property manager, from feedback from residents, that we're able to adapt the template such that the template is getting smarter and smarter as time goes on. Sounds like it. So your most recent project was transform a 102-room hotel in Oakland into this type of housing. Tell us about that project. As a company, we have experience doing, you know, rehabbing apartments. We probably rehabbed a few thousand units. We built ground up buildings, but the other expertise that we have is adaptive reuse. So we've converted a church into 60 units. We've converted an old cannery building into a small business center called Art House Studios. And so what we found a hotel in Jack London Square, which is a great location in Oakland. And this hotel because of COVID, it had hit very low occupancy. And the nice thing about hotel rooms, they're on average 325 square feet. And so the, the, the actual physical structure is pretty well designed for what it is we're doing. And so we started looking at this at the end of 2020. We closed in September. And what we're doing there is the building, because it's a hotel, has a pool, has a gym, has meeting rooms. And from 102 rooms, we're reducing some parking. So we'll end up with 103 residences. Fabulous location. You can walk to CrossFit. You can walk to Blue Bottle, et cetera. And we're going to create what I think will end up being one of the best experiences for $1,800 or $1,900 anywhere in the Bay Area. And, you know, I don't know if you watched Melrose Place in the 90s, and I don't want to date myself, but when I went there, I'm like, this is going to be like Melrose Place. It's going to be Heather Locklear in the corner, and everyone's going to be walking around and hanging out with each mm -hmm. other, hanging by the pool, going down to get a drink. It'll be fun. Meanwhile, you still have the privacy of your own apartment, all for what it would typically cost to rent a bedroom. And that's really the goal. Like, most of this demographic typically shares an apartment with another person, and they rent a bedroom, and you don't have control over your private space. So what I look for is what are ways in which I can create an apartment for the same cost as someone would typically pay for a nice bedroom. And the, and the Z Hotel presented this fantastic opportunity to be able to do that. The other nice thing about these rehab projects is they're faster. I mean, if you could build, you know, if you compare it to like many construction projects, right? And these things take forever. And so what I like about the Z Hotel project, you know, we closed in September of this year and we'll probably move people in fourth quarter of next year, first quarter of 2023. Great. Is the Z Hotel in an opportunity zone? Because I know you have raised capital through qualified opportunity zone funds a couple of times. So actually the Z Hotel, because it was not an opportunity zone, is actually in what's called a special asset vehicle. So we went to our investor group specifically for that project. 
it, we could not put it into an opportunity zone fund because it's not a, a, a location designated as an opportunity zone. Okay. The majority of our work, as you're mentioning, is within the opportunity zone framework. And so the way we think about what we do is like we're entitlement experts. We know how to build buildings and we're trying to hit an affordable price point. And we've now layered the opportunity zone on top of that in order to give our investors this beneficial tax treatment. In this new fund, we will target building eight to 12 buildings and we will target building a total of 1600 residences, right? Because of the way we've structured the vehicle. So for example, to, for every million dollars somebody invests, they're effectively helping us create 16 residences. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about opportunity zones. They've definitely helped create housing, but the program has also been criticized because of the lack of reporting and because of the location of some of the projects. How would you say that Riaz Capital's projects have fulfilled the original intent of the program? That's a fantastic question. Not that all your questions, Therese, aren't fantastic, but I really love this one. Thank you. Anyways, no problem, Therese. Our company has maintained the idea of, for a decade, of how do we create entry-level housing, which is a nice place for people to live, right? So what we're doing with this fund is we're building micro-living, which is essentially workforce housing or entry-level housing or moderate income housing, whatever the word of the day is, in areas that are transit-oriented because they're urban, which is why it's an impact story, right? People living in these areas will have a, buildings will have a lower carbon footprint than people living in the suburbs, very much with the intent of the original legislation. The other thing from our company's point of view is that what we are doing on a day-to-day -day basis is no different than what we were doing pre-opportunity zone. We were building buildings to house entry-level workers where people just didn't want their budget completely consumed by housing. And so what this program did is it incentivized entrepreneurs, whether they're real estate entrepreneurs or business entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. go create companies and homes in areas where they were needed. Now, will every company be perfect? Will every project be perfect? No, but the odds are it enabled people to the government indirectly to make thousands of bets. And the odds are, you know, if you just bet on America that, basically a large number of those will be successful. Right. It's looking like California building owners will need to install solar panels and batteries on their roofs starting in 2023. Many say this will only make housing more expensive in San Francisco, but you have a different take on that. What is that? The dinner conversation growing up when I was a kid, you know, I always thought of myself as a little businessman. And my stepdad ran an organization called the Sierra Club uh, back then. And we'd have this very kind of like simplistic debate between elder statesmen and young Turk. And what's super cool now is solar is actually financially accretive to projects in California. So, for example, at my office building, we just added an acre and a quarter of solar panels. And it makes it so there's no PG&E cost anymore. And so doing the right thing for our environment as it relates to at least electricity very clearly pays economic dividends. Now, that is not true about every regulatory requirement that they place on housing projects. But in the case of solar, 
it unquestionably does. And I actually think the other one that we should be looking at for new construction projects is giving some carrot, not stick, to water conservation. So how do you take some of the water, not all of the water, on a, on a home or an office building or a hotel and recycle specifically the laundry, right? Because it's, it's high use. There's not a lot of other things that go into it so that you can use it for your landscape, for example. And so, you know, I'm actually excited about these things where it actually creates economic value for the project and where you're doing the right thing for the environment. You serve as an Oakland board member for SPUR, uh, a regional planning and public policy think tank. What are some of your ideas for improving housing and housing development in the Bay Area and generally? Yeah, so I think there's three big areas that we need to think about. The first one is treating housing like infrastructure. You know, it's a right. How do we make it more accessible to more people in California? And I think the biggest thing here is the tax policy that we have on housing. We don't tax somebody when they buy food. We basically don't tax somebody when they buy water. But when they buy housing, there's an embedded amount of tax embedded within their rent. And so I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the idea of giving, and they did this in New York, where you give uh, uh, projects or uh, buildings a 10-year or 20-year property tax holiday, as long as you provide a certain amount of moderate income or low income housing. I think it's a great idea because it's such a big part of your expense structure. I think the, the second one is predictability. Low cost capital needs predictability in order to flow. And so the degree in which that when you buy a piece of land, you know exactly what you can build on and exactly how long it'll take you to get your entitlement. And the faster we can make that, the more capital will flow in to the category. And to give you some idea, in the Bay Area, San Francisco Planning and Urban Research says we need 408,000 units of affordable housing. What does that mean in terms of investment? It's about a $250 billion that we need just here in the Bay Area. We need the affordable housing players, but we need the market to work. In order for the market to work, it needs to be an attractive return. It needs to be predictable. In other words, you don't think you're going to lose your money. And it has to happen within a defined period of time. And so I think the bit, three big areas for the state and local government to work together on with the private sector is how do we not tax entry-level housing, number one. Number two, how do we create more uh, entitlement mechanisms that make it easier to get a permit? How do we make the act of coordinating between all the agencies simpler so we make building housing something that all entrepreneurs can do. It's not the limit of the large players, right? So some of the legislation that we've created in California, like SB9, where we make it so people can add, there's been a variety of these, but the accessory dwelling unit legislation, you can build small buildings. These are all great ideas, but if somebody isn't a professional developer, we need to make it easy for the average woman or man to be able to go about and do those things. For us larger developers, the California State Density Bonus for which we owe a great degree of gratitude to our state leaders, was a huge step in the right direction. And the more that we can build upon that, right, there's actually light at the end of the tunnel that California could go back to the point where we're actually building enough housing to sustain the population that we have here in the great state of California. Those are all really good ideas. 
Okay, Riaz, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you.